Welcome to the end of innocence, the JFK assassination. I'm your host, John Young. The last three episodes, we've shifted our focus away from Lee Harvey Oswald and turned our attention to what the Dealey Plaza witnesses saw and heard during the assassination. Some of their stories were absolutely fascinating. If you missed any of the episodes, go back to episodes 6, 7, and 8 and get caught up. Several weeks ago in episode 5, we took a look at where witnesses placed Lee Oswald at the time of the shooting of John F. Kennedy. Needless to say, it's not where the Warren Commission says he was. It appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. Something, I repeat, has happened in the motorcade route. There's numerous people running up the hill alongside Elm Street, there by the Simmons Freeway. Several police officers are rushing up the hill at this time. Stand by just a moment, please. Something has happened in the motorcade route. Stand by, please. Parkland Hospital, there has been a shooting. Parkland Hospital has been advised to stand by for a severe gunshot wound. The Warren Commission would have us believe that Lee Oswald used a 1940 German bolt-action rifle and fired three shots in 5.6 seconds, killing President Kennedy and wounding Governor Connolly. Oswald then leaves three cartridges neatly side-by-side in the sniper's nest, wipes fingerprints off the rifle, stashes it on the other side of the building, sprints down five flights of stairs past Victoria Adams and Sandra Stiles, who never see him, then shows up cool, calm, and collected on the second floor in front of Patrolman Marion Baker, who had just entered the building. All this within a maximum of 90 seconds after the shooting. Is he out of breath? According to Officer Baker, absolutely not. Assuming he's the sole assassin, Lee Oswald is now free to leave the building. The longer he delays, the more chance the building will be sealed by police. Is he guilty? Does he walk out the nearest staircase? No, he stands there and drinks his coke. And at a slow pace, spotted by Mrs. Reed on the second floor, he strolls out the more distant front exit, where the cops have gathered. The time is now 12.35 p.m., and the police begin to seal off the Texas School Book Depository building. Oswald is seen by a couple of other depository employees carrying his jacket and exiting the building. As Oswald is going out the front door, where all the cops are coming in, he is seen and spoken to by Buell Wesley Frazier. Oswald tells Frazier that Roy Truly, the building supervisor, just told him to go home, as the depository would be shut down for the rest of the day. Oswald's next series of movements, the Warren Commission and researchers actually agree upon. After leaving the depository, Oswald walks seven blocks to the corner of Elm and Murphy and catches City Bus 1213. What is amazing is that the bus that Oswald just boarded was not traveling away from the site, but back toward it. This is a man that the Warren Commission wants you to believe that just killed the president and is trying to escape. The bus driver, Cecil McWaters, identified Oswald at a police lineup as being the man who boarded his bus and then got off the bus at the intersection of Portress and Lamar. Oswald's bus ride is not a disputed fact. Oswald himself told Captain Fritz that he rode the bus until it was stopped in traffic, which made him switch to a taxi. When he was arrested, Oswald was found with a bus transfer in his shirt pocket that was dated November 22, 1963, and marked with a unique punch mark from McWater's bus. Also, Mary Bledsoe, who was Oswald's former landlord, happened to be on that bus and identified Oswald. There are also photographs of the bus that Oswald was on while he was on it. After leaving the bus, Oswald walks four blocks to the Greyhound bus station at Lamar and Jackson, where he saw a free cab, but he gave it up to a woman that walked up just as he had flagged down the cab. I have heard the interview that a fellow JFK assassination researcher friend of mine done with this woman. She says it was a very nice gesture for Oswald to do. 
She said Oswald acted very cool, calm, and collected, and did not act like he was in a big hurry or rush. If Oswald were running from the police and in a big hurry, why would he give up his cab to someone else? Oswald then gets in the cab of William Whaley. Whaley opened the back door for his passenger, but Oswald said he wanted to sit in the front seat, which is a common practice in the Soviet Union where he was a former U.S. Marine and had defected there in 1959. Whaley asked Oswald where he wanted to go, and Oswald replied, 700 block of North Beckley. This would be an approximately three-mile drive, and with the sirens blazing and police cars crisscrossing everywhere, Whaley would say, quote, what the hell? I wonder what the hell is the uproar, end quote. Oswald never said anything, according to Whaley. The Warren Report says it would have taken six minutes to drive from the Greyhound Station to 700 North Beckley, putting Oswald at his rooming house at 1 p.m. But Whaley, the cab driver, says it took nine minutes, and Oswald arrived at 1.03 p.m. What's the big deal, you say? These three minutes will become very important when we start to look at whether Oswald killed Officer J.D. Tippett. So let's see, Oswald got on a bus, then got out when it got stuck in traffic and took a cab to his rooming house. The Warren Report was correct about this. So everything settled about this part of the story. Not so fast. Some of you have been waiting for this moment. Well, now it's here. Other witnesses saw Lee Oswald flee Dealey Plaza that day in a Nash Rambler station wagon. Let's go back to Ed Hoffman's testimony just for a minute. As he was looking over the plaza, Ed Hoffman says he saw a stocky man in a dark blue business suit and a black hat standing near the picket fence at the top of the grassy knoll. He refers to this person as Suit Man. There was another man who was tall, thin, and dressed like a railroad worker. Hoffman refers to this person as Railroad Man. According to Hoffman, he saw a railroad man standing by the switch box for the railroad in the area behind the fence. Suit man kept walking back and forth between the fence and the switch box and stopping to talk to railroad man. Hoffman then saw two cars drive into the parking lot behind the fence. First a white four-door sedan, then a light green Rambler station wagon. The Rambler parked near the railroad switching tower. Suit man walked over to the railroad man one final time and spoke briefly, then returned to the fence. Hoffman then saw suit man crouch down, pick up something, and stand up. Immediately after that, he saw a puff of smoke by the suit man, which Hoffman assumed was from a cigarette, but then realized it was from a rifle. Then Hoffman says he saw suit man turn suddenly with a long gun in his hand and run to railroad man, tossing the gun to him. Railroad man caught the gun and broke it down by twisting it. He then put the gun pieces in a brown tool bag and walked north along the railroad tracks. Next, Hoffman saw suit man turn back towards Dealey Plaza and begin struggling along the fence. Hoffman saw a uniformed police officer run up the hill and confront Suitman with a gun. Suitman held out his empty hands and took out an ID out of his pocket and showed it to police officer, who then put his gun away. Hoffman then observed Suitman mingling with the crowd before he walked over to the Rambler station wagon and got in on the passenger side. The Rambler drove out of the parking lot along the north side of the school book depository. Hoffman last saw the Rambler as it made a right turn onto Houston Street. A few minutes after President Kennedy was shot, several people, independently of each other, reportedly saw two men leaving Dealey Plaza in a light-colored Rambler station wagon. 
Marvin Robson was driving his Cadillac west on Elm Street, directly behind the Nash Rambler station wagon. After crossing Houston, he drove past the Texas School Book Depository and almost slammed into the back of the Nash Rambler when it suddenly stopped. Robinson noticed a white male hurry down the grass-covered incline and entered the station wagon. He then followed the car as it drove under the triple overpass. Marvin Robinson's employee, Roy Cooper, was following him in a different vehicle. Cooper remembered the Nash Rambler stopped so suddenly that Robinson narrowly avoided running into the back of it. Cooper saw a white male between 20 and 30 years of age wave at the driver, hurry toward the car, and enter the vehicle. The FBI interviewed Marvin Robson and Roy Cooper, but they never testified before the Warren Commission, nor were their statements published in the Warren volumes. Mrs. Helen Forrest saw the same young man run from the side of the Texas School Book Depository and enter a Nash Rambler station wagon on Elm Street. Mrs. Forrest said, quote, If it wasn't Lee Oswald, it was his identical twin, end quote. Mrs. Forrest was the first and only witness in Dilu Plaza to correctly identify the man in the white shirt as Oswald or his twin. Another witness, James Pennington, also saw the same man in a white shirt run from the side of the Texas School Book Depository and enter a Nash Rambler station wagon. Pennington later identified that man as Lee Harvey Oswald. At 12.40 p.m., Deputy Sheriff Roger Craig was standing on the south side of Elm Street when he heard a shrill whistle coming from across the street. He saw a man with sandy brown hair wearing faded blue trousers and a light-colored shirt hurrying toward the street. A light green Nash Rambler station wagon with a chrome luggage rack driven by a husky Latin man with short dark hair was moving slowly west on Elm Street. The vehicle suddenly stopped due to heavy traffic and he watched as the car drove west on Elm under the triple underpass and headed in the direction of Oak Cliff. These eyewitnesses, Craig Robinson, Cooper, Forrest, and Pennington, saw a man who looked very much like Lee Harvey Oswald, who was arrested by the Dallas police. But it was not the same man. It was not the Oswald who was shot and killed by Jack Ruby. So who was this man, this Oswald look-alike? Photographer Jim Murray took a picture of the crowd standing in front of the Texas School Book Depository and also captured the hurt sign on top of the building which read 12.40 p.m. Murray's photo shows a man standing on the south side of Elm Street wearing a light-colored shirt and looking at the light-colored Nash Rambler station wagon. Deputy Sheriff Roger Craig can be seen in the photo on the east side of Elm observing the man as he approaches the car. Here's Deputy Sheriff Roger Craig talking about what he saw that day. As I was searching the south curb of Elm Street, I heard a shrill whistle. And I looked up. It just drew my attention. It was coming from across the street. And there was a light green Rambler station wagon driving real slow west on Elm Street. And the driver was leaning over to his right, looking up at a man running down the grass. So I immediately tried to cross the street to take these two people into custody for questioning. Just, you know, everybody else was coming to the scene. These were the only two people leaving. And this was suspicious in my mind, you know, at the time. So I wanted to talk to them. But I couldn't get across the street because the city officer who was stationed at Houston and Elm had left his post and the traffic, you know, was so heavy I just couldn't get across the street to him. But I did get a good look at the man coming down the grassy knoll. 
and he got in the station wagon, then they drove west on Elm Street. Scene regarding the suspicious man getting into the Rambler. I called Captain Fritz at his office and gave him a description of the man I saw get into the Rambler. And uh, he told me, and I quote him, it sounds like the suspect we have in custody. Come on up and take a look at him. So I went out and got in my unmarked car and drove to the uh, city hall, went directly to Captain Fritz's office. And uh, we went into Captain Fritz's inner office. And uh, a man was sitting in a chair behind a desk. And there was another gentleman. I assumed he was one of Fritz's people because he had the white cowboy hat on, which was the trademark at that time of the Dallas Homicide Bureau. And Fritz turned to me and said, is this the man you saw? And I said, yes. And he was. Sheriff Roger Craig's positive identification of Oswald running down the hill and getting into the Rambler makes Craig the third witness to see the same thing. He backs up what Helen Forrest and James Pennington saw. But what Craig says he heard Oswald say to Captain Fritz next is a real mystery. So he turned to the suspect and he said, this man saw you leave. At which time the suspect became a little excited. And he said, I told you people I did. And Fritz said, now take it easy, son, talking to the suspect. He said, we're just trying to find out what happened here. He said, what about the car? I didn't say station wagon. He said, what about the car? At which time the suspect leaned forward and put both hands up on the desk and said, that station wagon belongs to Mrs. Payne. Don't try to drag her into this. Then he leaned back and very disgustedly said, everybody will know who I am now. Now, this was not a brag. I know it's been blown up to be a brag in the Warren Commission. This was not a brag. This was a man that, that, uh, he was embarrassed about it, or disgusted that he had had, uh, uh, blown his cover or or been caught or or something. You know, it, it wasn't a brag. Let's break down what Craig says Oswald told him and Captain Fritz. First, Oswald does not admit to leaving in the Rambler. He just admits to leaving the scene. In fact, Oswald himself is on record saying that he took the bus and then a cab to his rooming house, which matches the warrant report. When Captain Fritz said, This man saw you leave, Oswald responded, I told you people I did. When Frisk asked Oswald, What about the car? Oswald's response of, That station wagon belongs to Mrs. Payne. Don't try to drag her into this is perplexing for a few reasons. First, neither Captain Fritz nor Sheriff Craig told Oswald that the car at issue was a station wagon. Oswald is the one who says station wagon for the first time. Oswald had no way to know the make or model of the vehicle that he was accused of fleeing in. So, it is important to note that Oswald didn't say the Rambler belongs to Mrs. Payne. He said that station wagon belongs to Mrs. Payne. 
Second, Oswald's answer about the station wagon raises the question of whether Ruth Payne did, in fact, own a Rambler. The FBI looked into this issue and determined that Payne owned a light-colored 1955 Chevrolet Bel Air station wagon. For some of you who may have forgotten, Ruth Payne was the woman that Marina Oswald and the kids were staying with during the time of the assassination while Lee Oswald was living in a rooming house in Dallas. It's not surprising that Warren Report defenders have serious issues with Sheriff Craig's testimony. Vincent Bugliosi says he believes Craig was telling the truth about seeing a man run down the hill and get into a rambler because it was corroborated by other witnesses. But as far as Craig's testimony that the man he saw looked like Lee Oswald, Bugliosi says Craig is either lying or made a sincere mistake because we know where the real Oswald was at that time. And Bugliosi is right about that. It's not so easy to write Craig off as just a kook, because most of what he said is corroborated by other witnesses. And Craig wasn't just some random sheriff. The man was well respected by his peers, having won the Dallas County Sheriff's Man of the Year Award in 1960 after capturing an international jewel thief. He had been promoted four times at the Sheriff's Department before the assassination. But he did not go along with the official story, and that's why some have such a big problem with Deputy Sheriff Roger Craig. So, how did Lee Oswald leave the crime scene? Was it on a bus, and then a taxi, or was it by jumping in a Rambler station wagon? Did Lee Oswald leave Dealey Plaza in a Rambler station wagon, or was it an Oswald look-alike? There's more to this than you can imagine. I know I may lose some of you here, but stay with me and hear me out on this. I'll admit, there's a lot of strange things when it comes to this case. But one of the strangest set of occurrences leading up to the assassination was sightings of other Oswalds in and around Dallas. Beginning around November 6th, there was a man or men seen around the Dallas area that looked like Lee Oswald and was telling people he was Lee Oswald. These instances went on up to November 22nd. Some made an obvious scene, perhaps to be remembered afterwards. I'm going to be real honest here. If you think the theory of two Oswalds in Dallas is just nonsense, you're not alone. I have studied and combed over this case for 35 years. I have interviewed hundreds of witnesses, spent more hours than I can even imagine going through files and documents concerning this case, being in and around a research group, being a part of and being around groups of researchers who have dedicated their lives to studying this case. And I have to tell you, for years, I thought the two Oswald theory was nonsense. That's until I started looking into it myself. And there's just not a lot of smoke there. There's some fire. Again, stay with me here and hear me out. There's some things that just can't be explained, other than the fact that someone was impersonating Lee Oswald leading up to the assassination. While the real Lee Oswald did not drive, on more than four separate occasions, a man in a furniture store, a man at a car dealership, a man at a shooting range, and a hitchhiker are all seen in the weeks preceding the assassination, and each time, the man looked just like Lee Harvey Oswald and stated he was Lee Oswald. And he would say things that caused the witnesses to report these instances to the authorities after the shooting of JFK. Most are documented by the FBI, but no surprise, all were dismissed by the Warren Commission. Mrs. Edith Whitworth worked at a used furniture store known as Furniture Mart. It had previously housed a gun shop, and in early November 1963, 
there was still a sign out front advertising gun repair. In an interview with FBI agents, Whitworth said that around November 6th to November 8th, a man came into her shop inquiring about gun repair. She later recognized this man from TV pictures as Lee Oswald. She advised him that there was no longer a gun repair shop in her building and directed him to a nearby gun shop. The FBI report goes on to say that Whitworth stated that, quote, Oswald inquired as to both a living room and dining room set, stating that he would need both in the near future. She goes on to say, while Oswald was in the store, his wife, carrying a small baby and leading a small girl, came in and observed Oswald's activities but never made any statement or said anything. On leaving the furniture mart, the Oswalds made a U-turn and left driving against the traffic on East Irvine Boulevard in the direction of the gun repair shop in either a 1956 or 1957 two-tone blue and white Ford or Plymouth, end quote. Gertrude Hunter was in the furniture mart with Edith Whitworth at the time the Oswalds came into the store. She testified that a man drove up in the front of the store, came in, and asked for the gunsmith. She said the car was a two-tone blue Ford, probably a 1957 or 58, and the man gave his name as Lee Oswald. Just for the record, Maureen Oswald denied ever having been in that store and denied ever seeing Lee Oswald drive a car. In early November 1963, Albert Bogard was a car salesman at a downtown Lincoln Mercury dealership on Commerce Street in Dallas. On November 9th, he told the FBI that about one month earlier, a young man came into the showroom and said he wanted to buy a car. This was Saturday, November 9th, about three weeks before the assassination. Bogart introduced himself and asked the man's name two times before he told him, I'm Lee Oswald. After showing the cars in the showroom, the two men went outside. Bogart said this was when the man gave his name once again. He seemed interested in a red Comet hardtop, and when asked if he had a trade-in, the man said no. Bogart asked him about a down payment. The man said he had some money coming in a few weeks and would pay cash for the car. Next, the salesman took a similar car from the lot and asked the man if he would like to drive it. He said yes. The FBI documents the trip that the two men took to Stevens Freeway and opened it up at speeds of 75 to 85 miles an hour. When they got back to the dealership, Bogart asked him to fill out some paperwork, but the man said no. He asked two more times for the man's address or phone number, but the man refused. Bogart would then give this man his business card. Bogart then wrote the name Lee Oswald on the back of one of his own cards and put it in his pocket. After the president was assassinated, he mentioned the card to other workers whom said, quote, he ain't a prospect anymore, end quote. He threw the card in the garbage November 23rd, began the many visits by the FBI in identifying the man as Lee Harvey Oswald. This incident is corroborated by the assistant sales manager and a second salesman who recalled the customer described by Bogart. Another salesman recalled Bogart asked him to assist the customer should he return in Bogart's absence. The salesman and his wife recall him having also written the name Lee Oswald on the back of his card. One of these witnesses quoted the customer as saying, quote, maybe I'm going to have to go back to Russia to buy a car, end quote. If this remark was in fact made, surely he would have remained in the salesman's mind and was intended to. Garland Slack was a retired heating contractor living in Dallas in November 1963. Sports Dome was a rifle range on West Davis Street in Dallas. There was also a location in nearby Grand Prairie, Texas. Slack personally knew the manager in Dallas and visited there often. On November 9, a man that looked exactly like Lee Harvey Oswald was at the shooting range from 3.30 p.m. to about 7 p.m. 
The next day, on the 10th, he was there from about 2 p.m. until 5 p.m. And on Monday the 11th, he was there from noon until 8 p.m. On December 2nd, 1963, Mr. Slack contacted the FBI to tell them about the encounters he had in the weeks preceding the assassination. He told the FBI that on November 10th, this man was accompanied by another man, much taller man, about six feet, dark hair, a dark complexion, and a beard. The men drove up in an old jalopy and unloaded three guns between them. The military-type style rifles all seemed to be of similar make. They were using ammo from a cup about half full. The shorter man was the same one he had seen the day before. He identified him as the man arrested for the assassination of President Kennedy. Slack became upset when the man started shooting at Slack's target. The man then continued to shoot at Slack's target and there was almost an altercation. Slack said the man then told him his name was Lee Oswald, but Slack said I never did ask for his name. There are four witnesses who on Monday, November 11th, saw a man they are sure was Lee Harvey Oswald at the firing range. The real Lee Oswald was at work at this time, verified by his time card and co-workers. Lee Oswald began work at the Texas School Book Depository on October 16, 1963. He was there every day until November 22nd. He did not miss a day's work. His hours were Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 4.45 p.m. with a 45-minute lunch from 12 noon until 12.45 p.m. There was another incident that occurred on November 6, 1963, when a man named Lee Harvey Oswald showed up at a shooting range and began practicing marksmanship. He caused quite a bit of consternation by firing an unusual weapon which, according to witnesses, shot a ball of fire out the barrel when it was used. It was a different weapon to the one that Oswald would use a week and a half later to supposedly shoot President John F. Kennedy. All three of the men said that they found it strange that Oswald kept telling them his name like he wanted them to know, hey, I'm Lee Harvey Oswald. Again, the real Lee Harvey Oswald was at work at this time, verified by his time card and his co-workers. Then there was an incident on November 13th at about 9.45 in the morning when a man who claimed was Lee Harvey Oswald was complaining to the waitress that his eggs were not cooked properly. The man made a huge scene and caused quite a commotion all over his eggs not being cooked properly. The man got up and stormed out of the restaurant, but on two separate occasions he told the waitress, my name is Lee Oswald. Once again, the real Lee Oswald was at work, verified by his time card and his co-workers. Then there's a fascinating story of a man named Albert Jackson from Dallas. This is a man who didn't share his story with many people. The only way I knew about this man and was able to interview him in 1997 was through a research colleague of mine. Mr. Jackson's story is fascinating. He says on November 19, 1963, just three days before the assassination, he was on a city bus. He struck up a conversation with a young man who said his name was Lee. Mr. Jackson said him and this man Lee talked for several blocks and then the bus came to a stop and Lee got off the bus. He then said a couple blocks later a man that was identical to the man named Lee that he was talking to got on the bus but was dressed differently. He said I remarked to the man, quote, hey do you have a twin brother? No man I'm not joking you've got to have a twin brother and he was just on this bus. I mean, do you have a brother named Lee? Because if so, he was just on this bus. And man, you two look identical. End quote. He said the man says I do have a brother, but his name is not Lee, his name is Robert. And we do know that the real Lee Harvey Oswald had a brother named Robert. Mr. Jackson said he sat there mystified the whole time. 
He said, I kept staring at him, and finally he got up and moved to the back of the bus. Mr. Jackson says, quote, When I say there was two Lee Oswalds on that bus that day, there were two Lee Oswalds on that bus that day. Or at least two men that looked exactly like Lee Oswald that I would see on TV just three days later, accused of shooting President Kennedy, end quote. Mr. Jackson went on to tell me that it had bothered him for years. And for a long time, he didn't realize his story was important. It's obvious that he saw the man that we all know as Lee Harvey Oswald, because the man said, yes, I do have a brother, and his name is Robert. And we do know that Lee Oswald had a brother named Robert. So he for sure talked to who we think is Lee Oswald. But who's the other gentleman he talked to? Was this a Lee Oswald impersonator? See what I mean when I say there's a lot of smoke around this? And you haven't even heard the best one yet. The story of how and why Oswald was impersonated is complicated and often strange, but it's no theory. While murky in places, much of the story is very well documented and undeniably truthful. If you say you're not convinced that there were two Oswalds in Dallas leading up to the assassination, you will not want to miss next week's episode. This is the evidence that convinced me there was more than one Lee Oswald in Dallas leading up to the assassination. It's one of the most interesting and tragic tales from the Kennedy assassination. It's the story of a man named Ralph Leon Yates. You don't want to miss this. We'll see you next week.